Mary's going to read our scripture this morning. Thank you. The scripture today comes from the first chapter of Mark, verses 35 to 45. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news all around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Thank you. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Is everybody doing well? All right. Hopefully, um, I won't have any more brain freezes, and this message will go just fine. But if I have a brain freeze, just pray for me, and it'll come back in a moment, okay? Okay. This has been a really, uh, for me at least, a really rewarding journey doing this uh, discovery of the real Jesus, because even in my own study and preparation for Sundays, I find myself running into my images of who Jesus is and being challenged by the real Jesus. And it's just been a really, really good thing for me as well in this process. Last week, we looked at the authority of Jesus. Uh, and as the kingdom draws near, we looked at how that was acted out in Jesus. And it and we, we came away with some ideas of how it can shape our thinking, how it can release us to pray differently, how it, can, how it can help us reframe how we see conflict with people at times and, and allow us to find a sense of freedom and power in God to have our lives change and help other people's lives change. This week, we're going to look at the source of authority. Jesus transitions, and in this passage, we see the source of authority, and then, and then we get to move beyond that again to another, I, I think, one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in all of the Gospels. Uh, as we look at the source of authority today, let's just start reading. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Uh, this is kind of obvious, you know, the source of authority, churches say it all the time, and this text says it, is, is prayer. And it almost sounds cliche to us, doesn't it? After all, when we hear sermons or messages like this, we hear quotes like this from William Law. He who has learned to pray has learned the secret of a happy and holy life. And we go, yeah, but we kind of go, huh. And then we hear ones like this. When we get to the point where we would rather die than spend another day without passionately knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ more intimately, then we will give serious attention to prayer. And we go, yeah. And we go, hmm. Because when we talk about prayer, I don't know if you're like me, don't you feel a little guilty? Isn't that, doesn't, doesn't, it, doesn't, doesn't a quote like that make you go, 
sheesh, I'm not that committed. And then especially when preachers use the common illustration, you've all heard this probably, if you've heard a message on, 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 on prayer at all, a preacher gets up and says this, yeah, so-and-so, great man of God, great woman of God, they kneeled by their bed so much in prayer that the hardwood floors became indented with their knees and their shins. You've heard, that, you've heard those kind of prayers? And you go, oh, man, and under your breath you go, isn't that guy a nice saint? And then you go, and I'm such a wimp. And I don't really like that guy because if I kneel down, even on carpet, my knees say it's time to stop praying in about five minutes and all I can think about is how bad my knees hurt instead of actually praying and I am just a wimp. I want to invite us to go beyond that today and next week as we explore it even more. To let the guilt go away and to look more deeply at what Jesus, the real Jesus, is inviting us to. You know, rarely have I met anyone who doesn't feel guilty at a sermon on prayer. I don't care if it's the Pope himself. I'll bet the Pope, when he preaches a sermon on prayer, feels guilty. Jesus invites us to this practice of regular solitude, of regular times of seeking God. In fact, as we see in this passage and elsewhere, when the pressure gets on, Jesus seems to back away from it and actually spend more time praying rather than less. We see in this passage, he goes out to the desert again to get away, because if we look at it in the context, he's just been very busy the night before till late at night ministering to people, and he leaves early in the morning and goes to the desert, and the disciples search for him, and it probably takes them a couple hours, so he's probably been out there praying a couple hours by the time he gets there. And we could talk about this whole idea from several different standpoints. We could talk about it from the standpoint of how God has created us with a need for rhythm in life with a need for times of self-care and that that's good, we should be, think that's good, but many of us treat self-care as like it's, it's a luxury we can't afford if we're gonna really work hard and succeed. Or we could talk about it from the, from the standpoint of that, you know, our normal patterns of self-replenishment uh, tend to be things like TV or recreation or movies or stuff like that, and, and while those are good, when they don't have prayer as part of that regimen of replenishment, those things really just become numbing agents rather than replenishing things to us. They just numb us from what we really need to pay attention to. You see, the context here is that Jesus' ministry is exploding. He started to preach. He started to heal. The demand was so great the day before that he ministered all day. He goes home to Peter's house and tries to get away, tries to get a meal, tries to get rest, and everybody brings everybody to the door, and they're knocking on the door until he comes out and says, heal me, you know, deliver me from this demon, heal me, and meet my needs and teach me, and he's doing this till late at night. And then the next morning, he's out trying to get some time alone, and the disciples, when they find him, here's their statement. Everyone is looking for you. Everyone wants you. Everybody needs you. And Luke 4, the parallel passage to this, the, the passage that's actually describing the exact same incident we're looking at in Mark, says this. It says, and they were trying to convince him to not go away from them, but to continue to do the miracles among them. You see, this is a time of great productivity. This is a time of huge opportunity for Jesus. The crowds are hanging on his every word. They're coming to him. 
And they're demanding his presence and bringing legitimate needs to him and saying, meet our needs. And the question needs to be asked, when we face a time like that in our own life, when the, pressure's going, when the pressure's on, the sales are going great, the work is growing great, everything's going great, people are coming to us, and we've got more than we can handle, more opportunities, what do we do in response to that busyness when the pressure's on? If you're like me, the temptation is to allow that to squeeze out or diminish your prayer and your personal time. And then if it gets even worse, usually for most of us, I think what goes first is prayer because we'll keep our family time, we'll keep our TV time or our our downtime when we're fried. Yet Jesus is demonstrating that when an opportunity is the greatest, prayer is that much more needed. Because if we really look at this, Jesus has this opportunity to change the entire course of human history. And within the pressure of that, he refuses to allow prayer to be squeezed out, for time alone to be squeezed out. If Jesus needs this, the sinless Son of God needs this so much, then how much more do we need it? In fact, could it be that time spent alone in prayer in solitude with God, and understanding truly the primary goal of prayer is at the heart of overcoming sin and at the heart of finding fruitfulness. It is the source of authority for us to find healing in our own lives, to be delivered from evil, and it is the source of life and purpose and meaning for us. Next week, we're going to talk more about how to pray. This week, we're just going to look briefly at the purpose of prayer as Jesus defines it and the priority of it, and then how it lives out again in Jesus' life. But when you think of prayer, what do you think of? If you grew up in a liturgical setting in the church, then probably what you, what you think of in terms of prayer is that I pray the prayers other people wrote and they're all dead because they're spiritual enough to write a prayer and I'm not, right? Or maybe you grew up in a liturgical setting where you did a lot of responsive reading and here's, here's my warped sense of humor around uh, around that. It's actually a good thing. It can be really healthy and wonderful. That's done in the Psalms, all that kind of stuff. The Bible does it, so I'm not dissing responsive reading. But, but here's the way responsive reading usually goes. The preacher says a lot of flowery stuff, and you get to do all the confession of guilt and repentance and shame. And that's your part of it. And they say all the stuff that you aren't smart enough to say, supposedly. Or maybe that's not your history. Maybe you grew up in a different setting. You were taught all the different kinds of prayer. You were taught about petitions and supplications and laments and how to pray in Jesus' name and how to pray and claim the blood of Jesus and how to be an intercessor and how to, you know, whatever, and and, and all that kind of stuff, the the way to pray according to the Lord's Prayer. And you were taught all this stuff, and it just becomes overwhelming. And And we tend to warp prayer when we get so focused on that stuff, it, the primary purpose of prayer gets lost. You know, I tend, to, I tend to warp prayer in this way, and I'm sure none of you have ever done this. You know, somebody preaches on prayer, and you say, okay, I'm going to recommit to the priority of this in my life. So even though I'm really busy this week, I'm going to still get up and have my devotions and my prayer. I'm going to still spend my half hour, hour, 20 minutes, five minutes, whatever It is, I'm going to still do it, and because I do this, God is going to help me get everything done faster. You you never bargain like that, do you, with God? 
You never come at it like that, do you? You know, I, I've come at it a few times. There's a few times in life when things go faster, and it's great, but you know what I've learned? I've learned that there's a reason why the studies show that preachers who do a halfway decent message spend 15 to 20 hours a week on a message. In fact, the guys who preach really well, what we really don't realize is they usually have a team of about four or five people researching and helping them write, and they still spend 15 to 20 hours a week on it. And you know what? Even if I pray, I usually have to spend that amount of time on a message. It just doesn't change. But we've all been there where we've bargained with God and we've had this big house project that's just frustrating us and we're praying and we're saying, okay, I'm, I should be working because I can't stand living in my house as a mess right now, but I'm going to pray and then God, it should go better and then everything breaks and we get angry, right? Or we pray and things just don't go right at work and we're just going, I thought you would help me and we'd warp prayer and prayer again becomes this stationary self-centered thing that we do that's really about us and jesus reminds us in the way he responds to the pressure of the disciples and the people here and in his teaching that we're going to look at in luke 11 which is a totally different passage and where he's teaching on prayer about the primary purpose of prayer and this Luke 11 passage, which we're going to include in the after the message this week, and I'm going to encourage you to spend some time reading it and looking at it more, is this, this really kind of odd segment of Jesus' teaching. It starts out in verse 1 with the disciples saying, Jesus, teach us to pray. And then for the next uh, nine verses or so, Jesus is actually teaching them how to pray. And then it switches to Jesus doing ministry. It's all in the same day. It's all in the same teaching context that he's in. It's, it, it, it switches to this thing of him actually doing the works of the kingdom and casting out demons and healing people and the crowds of the religious leaders in particular become very judgmental about him, jealous over the power. They're astonished by it. And we talked about how astonishment can be anything from positive to jealousy and negative. Well, they're jealous. And so Jesus then spends some time teaching about how we overcome the power of the enemy in our lives and, and then just continues to go on ministering to the crowds and crowds are growing and booming and more people and more people are coming and it's getting to be that much more of a long and pressure-filled day and he gives this kind of enigmatic uh, teaching about who he is referring to the sign of Jonah and then he finishes his teaching for the day. He, he begins the teaching of the day teaching the disciples how to pray he ends the day of ministry teaching the purpose of prayer, and in between, he's illustrating the results of a prayer-filled life. We think all too often that the purpose of prayer is asking God to meet needs in our life, asking him what we need, and then praising him, and pleasing him, and thanking him, and worshiping him, and those are all parts of prayer, but these four short verses, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 11 of Luke, give us this purpose of prayer that the kingdom of God is to draw near to us. And it starts out saying this, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. He starts off by telling us that the purpose of the prayer is all about the kingdom life and mission happening among us and through us and the kingdom coming near. And then he switches from that to speaking to us more specifically. And he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. 
Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted and when the light, as the, when the light of a lamp shines on you. You see, the purpose of the kingdom drawing near is to be a light to all people, including us. And being able to refocus on a regular basis, intentionally taking time to refocus our eyes and our heart, to open ourselves to that light, to allow God to come to us to be known by him and for us to know him is what prayer is all about. It's not so much about asking as it is about hearing and knowing and experiencing God. The purpose is to keep us close to the king so that we can be directed by him in the kingdom purposes as light breaks into our lives to stay humbly submitted, dependent in our position towards God, in a way that we look only to his goodness, his timing, his purpose, having faith and trust in him at every turn in our, in our path. Purpose of prayer is not to get things answered, although that happens. It's for us to be more deeply experiencing God and to be changed by him. It's practicing an openness. It's practicing a vulnerability before God and a, a surrender to him through intentional action, thoughts, and words. You see, Jesus gets away from the pressure. He goes into the lonely places to spend time with God, to bleed off the stress of those demands of what's going on, and and to sit in his light long enough so that he can know what the next step is, not what his disciples want him to do, not what the crowds and the, or his clients, let's call them that, because that, that relates to our world, not, not to know what his clients want him to do, but to know what God wants him to do to walk through the pressure to where the kingdom authority is at work, not just popularity and success in our own efforts. It's providing space in the busyness to make sure that he is led by the Spirit and stays within the kingdom purposes for his life, not the purposes of others, not even our own purposes. And there's something else in this passage which is, I think, an amazingly beautiful thing as well. It's a reminder that the healing and deliverance that Jesus brings to us is fantastic and it's something that his kingdom does in our lives. But there's also something else that he wants us to be about. And sometimes the other needs to take us away from that. It says they urged Jesus not to leave. Luke 4, Jesus gets up in Mark and says, I need to go elsewhere. But in Luke 4, it gives more specifics. It says, I must preach the kingdom of God. But there was so much going on there. There was so much need. Can you imagine the pressure? Now, we all have pressures in our lives. We all have obligations that we're to fulfill, right? We've all got needs. We've got people around us who who we don't want to let down. We want to meet their need. We want to care for them. We've got deadlines at work. We've got pressure all around us all the time. But put yourself in Jesus' shoes in this moment for just a second. These are people coming to him in a day when medicine was not like it is today, where a common cold or a common illness or a common infection could lead to death. And they're coming to him and clamoring to him saying, Jesus, heal us, save us, don't leave us. There's more of us to be healed. And Jesus literally has the power of life, and in their minds, death, in his hand for them. 
Can you imagine that kind of pressure coming at you from dozens and dozens of people? And yet Jesus stands up and he says, I know my purpose. The Spirit is leading me to move on, to, yes, continue to heal elsewhere, but to preach and to preach the kingdom. Why? It's because Jesus understands that people have needs, that we have needs that we don't even always realize we have. And Jesus' call of the kingdom, as we looked at before, the one response to his kingdom is repentance. It's this ability to just stay completely surrendered. And, and it's, it's Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to call you to call people to be converted, not just healed, not just delivered. It's as if he's saying to us, it wouldn't be loving of me to heal and not meet the needs of repentance. It would not be loving of me to just deliver people and not deal and not undercover the roots of bitterness and till the soil of selfishness in our lives that keep us hard and rebellious. It would not be loving of me to just heal physically and not consistently present the demand to repent, an invitation to surrender. And the richness of Jesus' ministry, as Tim Keller says, is that there are no words without deeds and no deeds without words in Jesus' life. Salvation from Jesus affects all of who we are, from conversion to healing every aspect of our lives or moving us towards healing. And then Jesus gives us another illustration of what that looks like in real life in this what I think is one of the most beautiful interactions of Jesus in all of his ministry. It goes on in verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Now, leprosy is something of horrific impact. I mean, you've got pictures on the screen of of people suffering with leprosy in the modern-day world today, around the world, and it is just something that is horrific to look at, isn't it? To imagine that happening to you, to imagine touching that, it's just amazing. But leprosy in that day was so much more than just a disease, especially in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, if you had leprosy, you were a social outcast. You were banished to live in the lonely places, in the wilderness, away from people. Can you imagine that? We know from today in in our culture that babies who are without touch do not thrive and do not do well, do not develop well. Can you imagine being banished to a touchless life alone? And then if they, were supposed to, if they ever came near to other people, they were supposed to yell out this word. They were supposed to say unclean and yell it out over and over again. But unclean is not like yelling, I'm sick and I'm contagious. Unclean was a spiritual world, a word in that day. Yes, you were, you were sick and you were potentially contagious, but it was a word that meant you were cursed by God. You were banned from worshiping in his presence. You were not fit to come to him. Can you imagine that kind of punishment? That kind of feeling for a leper? 
to experience that. And when lepers came near to others, they weren't, they weren't supposed to do it for one, but even if others who got near to them accidentally, they were also banished and labeled unclean and unfit to worship God. And in this story, we see this leper, the crowds all around Jesus, and this leper runs the gauntlet to Jesus, yelling unclean and watching the crowd part because they're all fear, afraid of him. And he, he comes up to Jesus and he kneels before him in this, in this populated area and he, he kneels before him and says, if you are willing. And you see, this leper knows that he's completely at the mercy of Jesus because if Jesus doesn't do something, the people as they're reeling away are also picking up stones and they're going to start throwing them at him. And he's either going to die that day or walk away severely, severely wounded. And the man says, if you are willing. I think there's two things going on in that phrase for this man. One is something that I think we struggle with when we pray. It's this struggle of when we're going through a difficult time, we go to God and we go, are you really good? Do you really want to come to me? Do you really want to solve this? Do you really want to meet me at this point of need? But on the other hand, Jesus also sees, and because of the circumstances around which he comes, there's also this, this complete surrender on his part. If you are willing. He doesn't say you must. He doesn't come to him and say, I risked everything and I'm... I'm about to be stoned if you don't do something here, so you have to do something. He doesn't come with any kind of demand. He says, I trust you. I've dropped all my, I'm dropping all my conditions, and I, I submit to whatever you will, if you are willing. We tend to, in our prayer, come to God with bargains, with conditions, with terms, and our pursuit of faith becomes more about what we want than what God wants so often. And yet if Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, the creator of all that is, our loving Father, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, then how can we even know what we really want, what we really need, without him telling us, without him showing it to us and coming to us? Prayer is letting his light shine on us to reveal, to search, to heal, to instruct, to give hope, to show us what we really, really need. And this leper says, you are Lord of all, and I give up my right to define what I need, and I put myself unconditionally at your service and your disposal. And that kind of a statement scares the crud out of us. Can you imagine this? Can you see yourself with all your scars, with all your warts, with all your dirt, with all your skeletons that have been in the closet, with all your fears laid bare, vulnerable before God? Jesus' response is interesting. In a lot of translations, it uses the word compassion, but the word is also translated indignant. It's kind of this indignant compassion that Jesus has. And I suspect it's probably indignant because there's this there's this tinge in Jesus that's going, oh, I just wish you wouldn't question my goodness. I wish you'd just trust me in that way. And yet, compassion, because he's taken actions to risk all 
And in spite of doing that, he's not done what most of us do and demand anything. He's just submitted, trusting in the midst of all of his faith to God to do whatever he wants. And Jesus, filled with compassion, reaches out and touches him. This diseased, smelly, gross leper. He touches him. Why touch him? I mean, Jesus had healed many times with just a word. Why touch him? Jesus does, though, in front of this crowd that is reeling away, angry, judgmental, probably yelling at the man. He tenderly reaches out and touches him because Jesus is more than just healing the physical nature of this man. He knows he needs a touch much deeper than that. He's been starved for affection. He's been starved for touch. He's been starved for acceptance. He believes he's cursed by God and he needs to be touched by God himself to remove the shame that keeps him from God. He needs to be touched by someone who has spiritual authority and moral authority so he can experience forgiveness and acceptance, not just hear the words. Jesus is doing so much more than just healing him here. He's he's touching the very core of who he is. And the amazing thing is, not just in that, but what Jesus doesn't do. You see, throughout history and religion, you have to work really hard to stay pure. You have to get, work really hard to get to heaven. And, and to be blessed in life, you need to stay clean. So if you're religious, you stay away from tainted and unclean, unclean people because of the phrase that originated out of church. You don't, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't, don't go with girls to do or guys to do if you're a girl. Right? You don't touch what is unclean because you become unclean, and that's what religion tells us. Yet Jesus touches him and tells him to do all the ceremonial things he's supposed to do according to religion of the day to be declared clean, and yet Jesus doesn't do it himself. You see, for the first time in history, clean and unclean have come together in this tender friendship, this tender touch, and in Jesus saying, it's basically Jesus saying to him, I am cleanliness. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how disgusting, how revulsive, how perverted, how strange, how rude, how crude, how angry you've ever been. How, I don't care what you have done. If you come in contact with me, he's saying, you are clean. He's saying, I am wholeness. I am goodness. I am rightness. And through me, you get to experience the presence of God. Jesus tells the leper, don't tell anyone. And the leper does what most of us do when we're told to keep something quiet. He goes and tells everybody, right? And as a result, the leper and Jesus have to change places. The leper who had been forced to be in the lonely places now gets to be in the city because he's healed. And Jesus, who was in the city, now has to be in the lonely places. And for us today, Jesus went to the loneliest of unclean places, the cross, for us. 
to take forever upon himself all that is dirty about us, all that is shameful about us, all that is something we want to hide in a closet and to say, you can bring that to me and you don't have to hide anymore and I will make you clean. And not only that, but as part of my kingdom, I declare you to be part of me. I give you my name. You are clean and you are adopted sons, you are adopted daughters. I want us not to just hear these words today, but would you go with me for a minute and close your eyes and just use your imagination to picture this and experience it yourself? And as you close your eyes, picture a face. Have you ever seen one of those faces where you look into the person's eyes and they are just so despised, just so rejected, so hopeless, so forlorn, so unloved that they're just hollow? They're just distant shells of woundedness. Have you ever pictured anybody with those eyes, seen those eyes? Can you see it? And picture that person for a moment as the leper. Can you picture someone so disfigured, so smelly, so disgustingly dirty, so damaged by the ravages of skin disease that, that they are hard to look at without wanting to throw up? Can you picture that? And they come to Jesus. Just picture this in your mind. They come to Jesus. They throw themselves on the ground in front of him. They can't even look him in the face. They're looking at his feet. And he says, are you willing? And Jesus reaches out touches their face, lifts their chin so that their eyes meet. And with this amazing compassion, he just looks at him and says, I am willing. All the while touching him and the crowd's going, I can't believe it. What's he doing? And then he says, be clean to happen and Jesus eyes turn from just this kindness to a laughter and now I want you to flip and I want you to put yourself in the position of that leper I want you to see yourself just as just as disgusting as you painted that picture And as you look at yourself, I want you to see all the skeletons from your closet, all the things that you've been ashamed of, the things that you've hidden. Maybe you've never even told anyone the anger, the frustration, the disappointment, the heartache that you've caused and others have caused you. Just being vulnerable out there in front of everyone. The things you're so ashamed of that if you met Jesus today, you would be looking at his feet. Maybe not even looking at his feet, but probably be looking at the dust six inches in front of his feet because you wouldn't even feel worthy to look at his feet. I want you to see him reaching out to you with his hand, touching you gently on the cheek. And lifting your head. 
Jesus to speak to you as he declares to you not only that you're clean, but you are his son, you are his daughter, and he is giving you his name. Stay in that place for a moment. What's Jesus saying to you? 